Well, good morning. So I have a question for you all this morning. What are you doing here? Not here, here, but here on the earth. It's one of the great philosophical questions of the ages, right? Why are we here? Uh, Psychology tells us that all humans feel an inherent need to know that our particular lives have real meaning. They tell us the two best days of our lives are the day we're born and the day we find out why. (laughs) Theology tells us that our purpose and our meaning comes from God. So what is our God-given purpose as Christians? Why didn't God beam us straight to heaven when we put our faith in Jesus? Of what earthly good are we anyway? What are we doing here? So many ways to ask the same question. Well, in our passage today, James is going to answer that question. But first, let's recap a little bit uh, to put this section into James's flow of thought. So you'll recall that James was writing to Jewish Christians scattered all over the Greco-Roman world during a very dark and difficult time in human history. And uh, life was hard, probably not going to get easier in their lifetime. And so although James's style is kind of direct and a little um, maybe hard-nosed at times, he actually infuses his letter with hope for meaning in life right now in the middle of the heartache and the mess but also with hope for the not yet, for the life to come. In the preceding context of our passage today, in chapter 2, verse 5, James wrote that those who love God will inherit God's kingdom. He didn't explain that, and many volumes have been written on what the kingdom of God is, but essentially it is the rule and reign of God on the earth, where everything wrong is made right, and where God himself dwells on the earth with his people. And when Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, God in flesh, dwelled on the earth for 33 years, he made the the kingdom of God the central focus of all of his teachings, And then he demonstrated through his miracles and his interactions with people what life in the kingdom was supposed to look like and what it will be one day when he returns. And so when Jesus healed the sick and fed the hungry and forgave the sinners and released the oppressed and uh, created uh, wine out of water and calmed the storm, he was um, conveying that life in the kingdom is a life of restoration. It's a life of wholeness. It's a life of freedom. It's a life of overflowing joy and peace and order. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was conveying that life in the kingdom is about self-sacrificial love and ultimate kindness. That is our inheritance. And that is also what Jesus said we are to be seeking after until he comes again to make the kingdom of God our final and ultimate reality here on earth as it is in heaven. Until that day, we are living in the gap time, the time between what Jesus started and what he will ultimately fulfill. So how are we supposed to be living? Well, according to James and the rest of the New Testament, we are to be living by faith. And genuine faith means something besides a set of theological beliefs, as we've already talked about, right? It means staying the course. It means resisting temptation. It means being doers of the word and not hearers only. Genuine faith looks like controlling our anger and our tongue. It looks like caring for the poor and the marginalized without discrimination, 
So we pick up this week where we left off last week. Although there is a paragraph break in our Bibles after, uh, verse, at verse 14, James is actually continuing his emphasis throughout his book on living out the gospel. So last week we learned that genuine faith does not discriminate. This week's lesson we learned that genuine faith shows up in our actions. Genuine faith shows up in our actions. Just like last week, James begins with a warning. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to start there. But then I want to bring some practical clarity on two important issues that will frame the rest of our time together. First, I hope to clarify the connection between faith and works with regard to what it means to be saved. And then I want to clarify how faith and works fit together into the bigger picture of God's purpose for our lives as believers. So that's where we're going, and let's get started. Um, The immediate context of our passage today is the warning in verse 12 and 13, where James said, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. And we know that the law simply means the law of love taught by Jesus and demonstrated uh, on display in his life through his sacrificial death on our behalf. We learn, we know Jesus has set us free from the penalty of our sin, which is death and separation from God. But not only that, First um, Peter 1.18 says that Jesus has set us free from an empty way of life, a life devoid of God and all that makes life meaningful. He saved us from all of that so that he could save us to a whole new life, the kingdom life of Christ within us and lived out through us. How we live is not only a reflection of what we believe, but it is also ultimately how our lives will be evaluated at the end. James continued with these words of warning, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The warning here is that one day each of us will give an account to God for the way we speak and act. Now, many commentators have observed that James doesn't delve into theology because he's all about practical Christian living, right? And that is true. But every now and then he drops these little theological bombshells in there without any word of explanation, (laughs) like inheriting the kingdom of God and now this concept of judgment. James apparently didn't feel the need to explain himself because he assumed his readers understood what he meant. Um, Like the kingdom of God, accountability to God for one's life is an Old Testament concept as well as a New Testament one. The prophets and the psalmists talked about it and wrote about it often. Jesus talked about it. So did Paul, so did Peter and John. And now it sounds like James and all the rest of them are telling us that we're going to be judged according to our works, not our faith. And that's the sticking point, isn't it? And that leads us into the passage that we studied this week, where I hope to clarify the connection between faith and works with regard to what it means to be saved. So, James 2, 14 to 17 says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? The implied and expected answer is no. And then he gives an illustration of what he's talking about. 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of them says to you, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them what the body needs, what good is it? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead, being by itself. So James has used a number of synonyms to describe a faith that cannot save, and he illustrated it with an intentionally ridiculous scenario. He says that faith that can't save is no good, it's dead, and later on in verse 20, he's going to say it's useless. So let's figure out what he means by these terms. First of all, what does James mean by the word save? As evangelicals in 21st century America, we automatically go to eternal spiritual salvation, don't we? The concept of going to heaven or not when we die. But in biblical theology, the, the um, salvation is a very broad term. And in the Old Testament especially, it rarely means eternal salvation. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see the word saved mostly with regard to God literally saving his people's physical lives from their enemies, right? He's saving their lives. In the New Testament, we also see Paul and James using the word in much the same way. So just a couple of examples um, from theologian Earl Rodmacher. Um, he points out that in Acts 27, Paul talks about being saved literally from a sheep, shipwreck. And then in Philippians 1, he talks, he prays for to be saved out of prison into freedom. Later on in James chapter 5, James is going to talk about how prayer literally saves a sick person from death and how turning a wandering believer away from sin will literally save his life. So when it comes to the meaning of spiritual salvation, um, it's also a very broad uh, term. Rodmacher, again, gives some helpful insights. He wrote that salvation in the New Testament has a past, a present, and a future aspect to it, but it's all under the umbrella of, of the word salvation, and it's all a result of God's grace on our behalf. So, for example, I can point to a day in my past in the summer of 1972 when I put my faith in Jesus for the first time. I had been reading a little gospel track that a friend had given me, and finally the pieces of things I had heard came together and I understood the gospel. And so, in prayer, I agreed with God that I was a sinner, that my sins separated me from God, and that I needed a Savior. I told him I knew Jesus was my savior because he died for my sins and he rose again. And so I asked him to forgive my sins and to take me to heaven one day when I died. I would learn later that the gospel means a little more than that, but it means that. And, and I can look back at that time in the past and I say that was when I was justified. That is, I was made right with God by faith in Jesus. He saved me from the penalty of my sin, which is death and separation from God. My justification was entirely because of Jesus' work on the cross and nothing I had done. It was a free gift. And God does not take back his gifts. I can never be unjustified. And I never have to ask him again to save me because he already has. Now, several years later, after I was justified, I learned that I can, 
choose or not to engage in the process of becoming saved from the power of sin to control my life. I learned that as I exercise faith in Christ by obedience and good works, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, because I can't do it myself, I'm engaging in a lifelong process that the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy word for becoming like Jesus. Not just in his character, but in his works. Now, we typically use the word transformation around here. It means the same thing. And it is a process of fits and starts and back and forth, but it will ultimately lead to complete transformation into the likeness of Christ. But I will never get there in this life, and neither will you. Because in this life, I will continue to struggle with sin in myself and in the world. But when I die and go to heaven, or if Jesus returns before then, whatever comes first, um, then I will finally be saved from the presence of sin because all evil and sin will be completely eradicated when Jesus reigns. That's called glorification, and it means that I will be at last, and you, like Jesus, with a new body free from the effects of sin and death and decay. Glorification is the future aspect of salvation, and it includes the heavenly rewards for whatever good we did for Christ's sake. We learned about the crown of life in chapter one, right? Jesus sees, he remembers, and he rewards. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. It's an evaluation of believers to determine rewards for all the various ways we have faithfully lived out the gospel. But the warning we talked about in verses 12 and 13, along with other New New Testament passages, particularly 1 Corinthians 3, (coughs) suggests that there will be a sense of loss of reward for ways that we lived contrary to the gospel. We will still be, live eternally with Jesus in heaven, but we will experience a brief time, a brief moment of sorrow. Because at the moment that we see Jesus face to face, don't you know in that instant, he may not even have to say a word. We will wish we had not been so fearful, so full of doubt, so stingy, not so self-centered, not so slow to listen and quick to anger. Don't you know we will wish we'd been more loving, more generous, more forgiving, and on and on. There will be both joy and sorrow at the judgment seat of Christ, but not, hear me, not condemnation. John 3, 16 to 18 clearly says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through those who would put their trust in him. And so the only thing we will see on Jesus' face is compassion as he wipes away every tear and welcomes us into his kingdom that he has prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Judgment is something that believers look forward to, both with humble reverence and with great anticipation. All of that to say 
that when James is writing to his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ and talking about a saving faith in relation to our works, he is not questioning their eternal salvation and he is not saying that they are eternally saved or not by their works. He is instructing them in the way of sanctification. He is revealing the hypocrisy of claiming to know Jesus and then acting like they don't. Being totally unconcerned with the plight of other people is anti-Jesus. So he's urging them to examine their lives in the light of Jesus and to engage in the process of transformation, sanctification by living out the life and teachings of Jesus in their everyday interactions with people. Otherwise, what earthly good is their faith? Well, James proceeds with a straw argument posed by an imaginary objector. He says, now some may argue, some people have faith, other people have works, as if you don't need both. But James replies, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. In other words, faith wasn't ever meant to hide in the dark. It's meant to be seen. Jesus said that, remember? He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see what? Your good works. And do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our good works bring glory to God and they shine heaven's light into the darkness of humankind. That's the purpose of them. To show off the beauty of God so that others can see him and know him. And we'll come back to that. James continues his argument. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? In other words, you know, the demons are quite orthodox in their belief about God and Jesus. But their faith is useless because they refuse to bow the knee and call him Lord. If they did, they would be doing good things because faith means more than intellectual assent to correct theology. It means loving and obeying God. Case in point, Abraham. James 2, 21. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. That's from the New Living Translation, and I highlighted those phrases to reflect the two different definitions of justification that we learned in our lesson this week. One of them focuses on how a person becomes saved in the first place, which is by faith, and that was Paul's emphasis. And the other one, James's emphasis, is on the actions that should show up as the outflowing of our salvation. And you know, it's interesting to note that Abraham's act of obedience in the sacrifice of Isaac came 20 years after he took his first step of faith in Yahweh. He, Abraham believed God and he was declared righteous. 20 years later, he was shown to be righteous. 
by his act of obedience. That means there was a whole lot of living in between. Many years of walking in fellowship with God. Sometimes trusting him and getting it right. And sometimes doubting him and messing things up. (laughs) But here's the beautiful thing. Somewhere along the line, Abraham became the friend of God. It reminds me of what Jesus told his disciples right before he went to the cross. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. This is my command. Love each other. Isn't that beautiful? God's commands were never about slavish obedience to religious rules. They were never about religious duty. They were always about love. Faith is essential. It's the start of a whole new life where our words and our actions both reflect and produce an intimacy with God that cannot be possible with faith alone. You show me someone who consistently displays the fruit of faith, which is love, and I'll show you someone who stays close to Jesus. When James says that our faith without actions is no good, that it's dead and useless, he literally meant it's of no earthly good. It's useless to save or preserve life. It's useless to accomplish God's purposes. It's of no practical value. It does not necessarily mean that faith does not exist alone. Um, For several years after I was justified, you would not have seen any evidence at all of my faith, mainly because I was ignorant of God's word. I'm so thankful God brought a young Christian woman into my life in college to start a Bible study in my freshman dorm. I was ignorant of how God wanted me to live, but through the study of his word, I learned how he wanted me to live, to show my faith through my actions so that other people could see it too. And that's why I stay in Bible study all these years later, because I have to keep learning and relearning how to do this. It is also possible to profess faith in Christ and walk with him for a time and then for whatever reason, distraction, busyness, sin, loss, or disappointment, turn away from God and stop living by faith. I've known many people over the years who have worried about a loved one's salvation because they walked away from God. They don't seem to have any fruit in their lives. Um, You know, Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know them. But you know, Jesus also told the story of the prodigal son who in rebellion left his father's house for a time so that he could live life the way he wanted to. And he experienced the hard discipline of living life away from his father's house. But he never stopped being his father's son. The father was always watching and longing for him to return. And when he did, the father was so overjoyed, he ran to meet him to welcome him back home. Those who make a sincere profession of faith in Christ become part of God's eternal family and they will live forever in God's eternal home. We are saved alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But our faith was never meant to be alone. It is tragic when it is because we were meant for so much more. 
We were meant to bear the fruit of our faith and to walk in intimate friendship with God all the days of our lives. And it is in our friendship with God that we find our purpose. And that was our original question, wasn't it? What are we doing here? Well, I'd like to borrow from Paul because he sums up the whole thing so well in in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. He said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's the gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. And then he says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And I love the way the message actually um, translate the last part. He says, he creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he's gotten ready for us to do. You and I were uniquely created anew in Christ Jesus to join with God in his plan for the world. And what is his plan? To reconcile, that is to make right all people through Jesus Christ. Our good works are an integral part of God's plan. They are the way that God, that the world sees God at work, reaching out to them, loving them, showing them what life was meant to be. What greater joy, what greater purpose and significance do we have in life than that? It is not about religious duties. It's about joining with God to change the landscape of time and eternity as God uses our words and our actions to transform our families, our communities, and our world little by little. The gospel was never just something to believe. It has always been something to joyfully live out day by day, moment by moment. And every time we speak and act like Jesus, we bring a little bit of heaven down to earth and we store up a little bit more treasure back in heaven. So two years ago, God put it on my heart and my neighbor's heart, who's also a believer, to reach out to our neighbors in some way. We didn't feel adequate at all. We had no clue what to do. We only knew uh, that that was something that, that God wanted us to do. We also knew we had three things God had already given us. He'd given us our homes, he'd given us the gospel, and he had given us the faith to believe that God is always at work drawing people to himself and that he could actually use us to do that. So we, uh, very timidly, we probably had a little more fear than faith, we stepped out and uh, we started a monthly potluck gathering. And over time, we've established sort of a core group of people that, that gets together. Um, very diverse group, and we've developed some really sweet friendships. Uh, we've been able to sort of um, casually speak of Christ here and there. We've been able to um, actually serve them in, in times of need. Um, but just last month, after two years, out of the blue, our precious Hindu neighbor threw out this question to the group What is the purpose of religion? That was the first time we had ever talked openly about what we all believe. And it was the unbeliever who put it on the table because God had been working in his heart and in his mind and he felt safe to ask the question. Well, needless to say, it was a very lively eye-opening conversation. (laughs) And interestingly, it centered around good works. Someone asked, why do you need religion to do good works? Good question. 
You actually don't. We talked about how people do good works all the time for all kinds of different reasons. Maybe um, secular humanists do good works to feel better about themselves. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's sort of a, a self-centered sort of thing. Or maybe they truly feel compassion. Maybe it gives meaning to their lives because maybe they're just following their God-given conscience even though they may reject God at all and don't think to ask where that compassion and conscience comes from. Maybe some people, like my precious neighbors and others actually, um, do good to avoid bad karma. In other words, not so much necessarily to be kind or to join any particular God and his plan for the world, but to sort of protect themselves. We are not to judge other people's motives, right? We look at our own hearts. Christians have the gospel. We have the words of eternal life and we do good works because we want to show off the beauty of God's character and his kingdom so that others can see him and know him and experience him. By the way, I'm trusting God to continue those conversations with my neighbors and to bear fruit at some point. But I have a couple of questions for us to consider as we close. The first obvious question for us is this. How are we doing at showing our faith by our actions? Are we wooing others to God by the way we live, particularly in the area of good works done with love? The second question is, what particular good deeds did God plan for you to do? I don't know about you, but with 24-hour news feeds and social medias, I am bombarded with needs of every sort and magnitude all the time. The scope of opportunities to do good works are overwhelming, aren't they? So if you aren't sure of what particular good work God has carved out for you to do, I would just suggest that you start by asking him and making it a matter of daily prayer. And as you pray, take a look inside of you. What needs and concerns that you are are aware of tug at your heart? They will most likely have something to do with your own life experiences, your interests, your personality, your training, your abilities, your connections, and your resources. You have so much to give. Offer it up to God and ask him to show you the how and the where and the when. And then simply look around you. Who are the people that God has already placed in your immediate vicinity, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. It is no accident that they're there. (laughs) How are you doing with those people? You know, there are daily acts of kindness and grace that don't necessarily demand any more of your time, but a simple change of heart and focus can begin to make a world of difference. Maybe it begins by being a little more patient with that coworker. (laughs) or maybe a little more tender with your husband or your teenager. It might mean introducing yourself to the new neighbor next door or learning the name of the barista at your favorite coffee shop or, or, or learning the name of the lady who checks out your groceries. Just start small and see where God might take that. In a moment, Tiffany's going to share some opportunities that we have to put our faith in action here at IBC and with our uh, ministry partners And, you know, as Barry said on Sunday, in these days of dis-ease and just turmoil in our country, it's so easy to sort of lash out in anger on Facebook or to wring our hands in despair. But we don't have to do that (laughs) because we are the church and we have the gospel 
And the gospel has the power to transform our lives and those around us in ever-widening circles. That is our purpose, and it is fulfilled when our faith shows up in our actions. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made each one of us with a purpose in mind. And nothing would give us more joy than to know that we are fulfilling your purposes for our lives. Would you show each one of us what that looks like, where we are in our lives right now? Would you save us from comparing ourselves with others and remind us that faith and action looks like love and that on any, different, any given day that we can show love, even when it's not easy or not convenient or maybe even acknowledged, enable us by your spirit to live in a way that reflects your own heart. And these things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake and for his glory. Amen.